This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Well, thank you, uh, Professor Scott Waugh, for that generous introduction, and, um, and Professor Jan Reef for your uh, framing of today's lecture so nicely. Um, I also want to thank the Faculty Research Lecture Selection Committee and the Law School Dean, Rich Moran, for giving me this great honor. And I want to thank the many programs and centers and institutes at UCLA that have supported my work during the 10 years I've been here, including the UCLA Law School Summer Research Fund, the UCLA Institute for Research on Labor and Employment, uh, the uh, University of California Labor and Employment Research Fund, the UCLA Center for American Politics and Public Policy, and the UCLA Faculty Research Grant Program. That's all been very, very important and, uh, and I'm gratified for, the, for all of that support. And lastly, to the faculty, students, alumni, and staff, as well as my friends and family members that are here today in the room, I want you to know that I'm truly grateful for your collegiality, inspiration, friendship, and support. As of this spring, I've been teaching for 30 years exactly. It's been a marvelous journey that has taken me from the Cardozo Law School in New York City to Cornell University in Ithaca, New York, and then here to UCLA, with stops along the way at Princeton, Yale, Chicago, and Stanford. And along the way, I've learned how much I really love universities. They create a unique space where thoughtful and knowledgeable people exchange ideas while engaging in a shared mission of teaching and fostering knowledge. I look forward to many more years of, it, of teaching, researching, and university engagement, but this lecture gives me a chance to pause, to pull together many of my ideas, and share them with the people I most respect. So let me turn to my topic. My central point is simple. Today we're hearing a lot about income inequality, high unemployment, stagnating wages, and the decline of steady work. And we're hearing a lot of proposals to address these problems by raising the minimum wage, investing more in training, and initiating a new stimulus program, and so on. And while all of these problems are very real, and the proposals are very important, I will argue that the issue is more fundamental, and that the proposals do not deal with the underlying problem. Over the past three decades, the entire context of the work experience has ruptured so that the legal regime and the social welfare mechanisms that we devised in the past to create a middle class do not work anymore. My talk today is about this rupture and also about invention, how we might remake social institutions to address the reality of the work experience today. The biggest hit on Broadway in New York in 2008-2009, which was the year that the financial crisis hit, was the musical Billy Elliot, a British import about a 12-year-old boy growing up in a northern New England, New e northern England coal mining town during the 1984 miners' strike. As you probably know, Billy is, is an inspiring dancer who has to oppose his powerful and conventional coal miner father in order to realize his dream of studying at the Royal Ballet Academy in London. The drama unfolds against the background of the lengthy and punishing miner strike in which the British miners battled the National Coal Company, the local police, Scabs, and Margaret Thatcher to try to hold on to their jobs and their way of life. 
The power of the story comes from the contrast between the working class culture of the miners, a mixture of noble sentiments of solidarity and community with baser sentiments of homophobia and sexism, and the uplifting and genteel culture of the ballet. The play is peppered with references to the glory days of British labor. In one song, the miners sing a version of Solidarity Forever while the police beat them back to make way for the scabs. Ultimately, the miners lose their battle just as Billy learns that he has been accepted into the ballet academy. The poignant ending shows the miners thoroughly beaten down, descending into the mines to mop up the last of their jobs before they hit the dole, while Billy, suitcase in hand, departs for his new and artistic life. The play portrays the demise of the 19th and 20th century industrial worker, whose notions of community solidarity and manhood were destroyed by the Thatcher assault and replaced by a new world of individual expression, personal risk, and opportunity. It's the story of the transition we see in the nature of work today. The miners' strike signified the end of an era, not just in the UK, but throughout the industrialized world. It was the industrial era, in which mass production firms offered long-term jobs to their employees, and national governments encouraged collective bargaining between corporations and labor unions. In that era, Keynesian macroeconomic policies combined with firm-level bargaining to create an unprecedented level of working-class prosperity that lasted for much of the 20th century. Margaret Thatcher's war against the miners in 1984 and President Ronald Reagan's parallel war here against the air traffic controllers in 1981 were the beginning of a multi-pronged assault on the institutions and ideology of liberal Keynesian capitalism. In the years that followed their victories, both leaders set in motion a cascade of legal reforms that extended over the ensuing 25 years that deregulated many aspects of the economy, weakened labor unions, and curtailed the redistributive powers of government. The reforms affected not only the way businesses operated, they also affected everyday life, the miner's way of life, a lifetime job with a single firm and a steady wage. That has been transformed into a world in which knowledge workers, entrepreneurs, free agents, and laboring drifters move about in diffuse networks, working on projects delinked from stable employing institutions. My argument is that many of our social institutions were devised during the era in which people had long-term jobs with a single entity for the entirety of their working lives. The ideal of stable long-term employment served as the template on which not only our labor laws, but also our laws regarding old age assistance, health insurance, unemployment insurance, home ownership, and education were based. These institutions formed the post-World War II social contract. Now, because the de facto stable form of employment is no longer prevalent, our social laws and institutions are no longer adequate. The challenge for public policy today is to devise new regulatory and institutional arrangements that not only aid the Billy Elliots of our time, but also assist the mates he left behind. Now first though, I want to tell you a little about myself. Uh, Not a personal biography, but an intellectual one. I began my intellectual life as a labor historian, studying the development of employment relations and work organizations in American industry. I used the steel industry as a case study to trace the implementation, transmission, and impact of scientific management in the 19th and 20th century. 
I showed how American corporations used the theories of Frederick Winslow Taylor and other industrial engineers of the early 20th century to construct job structures that dominated American industry and shaped labor relations for most of the 20th century. Later, when I became a legal scholar, I studied the post-war U.S. collective bargaining system and mapped the underlying ideological structure of our labor law regime. I discovered that through judicial interpretation, a system of deregulatory regulation was created based on the metaphor of the workplace as a self-sustaining mini-democracy in the private realm. I showed that the practical consequence of that system, a system which I called industrial pluralism, was to subject the unionized workplace to autonomous private rulemaking and to keep external law and external public policies out. I argue that the insular self-regulatory system of collective bargaining weakened the labor movement over time by isolating it from other social groups and reframing labor issues as concerns of narrow special interests rather than issues of larger concern to the, to the whole community. More recently, I've come to understand that these two bodies of work are actually part of a bigger story about U.S. labor relations in the 20th century. I saw that the ideal of collective bargaining as a self-sustaining mini-democracy depended upon a form of employment characterized by stable long-term jobs in large manufacturing enterprises that Taylor and his peers had championed. The insight was important for two reasons. First, it reinforced my belief that regulatory regimes are intimately bound up in the, with the social context in which they operate. And second, it enabled me to explore recent changes in the nature of work and to appreciate how the previous system had ruptured. So for the past 10 years, I've explored the consequences of the rupture, both in the U.S. and in other industrialized countries that have had a parallel experience. I've also looked at how other countries are attempting to revise their social policies in order to respond to the new world of work. So in my lecture today, I'll pull together my research and share some of my more recent insights. So I want to begin with a brief social history of the organization of work in America. There have been three eras in the employment relationship in the United States, the artisanal era, the industrial era, and what I call the digital era. And they can be described as follows. In the artisanal era, Production relied upon crafts workers who possessed, as a group, complete knowledge about the production process in their particular calling. In the 19th century, craft workers typically used their own tools and materials to produce shoes, barrels, horseshoes, and other products manufactured for sale in local and regional markets. They were often both producers and merchants. Sometimes they had employers who coordinated the raw materials and provided marketing for the finished products, but the employers did not direct the work or prescribe the manner of performance. In the artisanal era, production knowledge was in the exclusive possession of craft workers who had an elaborate system that included apprenticeships and craft unions to protect their human capital and control its dissemination. Craft workers used their monopoly of knowledge to ensure themselves fair compensation, to insulate themselves from product market fluctuations, to control the pace of production, veto the introduction of labor-saving technologies, and control the hiring and training of new employees. 
That is, they fiercely guarded what they termed the mysteries of the craft in order to protect their job status and way of life. So here are some images of 19th century craft workers. Toward the end of the 19th century, global markets opened up, intensified competition, and disrupting stable relationships between firms. In response, manufacturers sought to cut costs and introduce new technology technology by breaking the skilled workers' control of the production process. Once they did so, they teamed up with industrial engineers to devise new methods of work organization tailored to the technological breakthroughs of the day. And the result was a new era, the industrial era. Now, the industrial era was characterized by mass production for national markets. Employers sought uniformity in products and processes in order to achieve economies of scale. New job structures were needed to replace the former craft system in which workers themselves possessed production knowledge. A group of industrial engineers, of whom the most visionary was Frederick Winslow Taylor, turned to this task. Working in the late 19th and early 20th century, Taylor devised what he called a scientific method for organizing work. He saw the exercise of skilled worker control that characterized the artisan era as antithetical to efficiency, and he understood that the power of the skilled workers came from their exclusive access to production knowledge. Break their hold on knowledge, and their power would vanish. Taylor decided that it was necessary then to separate thinking from doing in the production process and put thinking exclusively in the control of management. He envisioned a world in which every detail of production, from the optimal cutting metal to be used for each task, to the type of handwriting to be used for writing internal shop memos, was spelled out in advance by management. There was no room for imagination, creativity, or spontaneity in his ideal workshop. Rather, the human parts of production, like those in the mass-produced product itself, were to be made exact, predictable, and interchangeable. Taylor devised a system for breaking down jobs into simple movements and then determining the exact time each movement should take. With this information, he devised compensation systems and performance measurement techniques that were designed to maximize each worker's effort and output. Soon thereafter, Henry Ford perfected the assembly line, a variant of scientific management, as applied to routine assembly work. And here we see some images from that era. Taylor's theory of scientific management, together with later embellishments by a group called the Personnel Management School, counseled firms to seek long-term relationships with employees in order to build up loyalty, encourage the development of firm-specific skills, and prevent turnover. As a result of these 20th century theories, large firms devised a series of job structures in which job tasks were de-skilled and individuals were bonded to their firms through pay and benefit structures, promotion prospects, retirement arrangements, and implicit promises of job security. Later, economists came to term this, this set of practices internal labor markets. Internal labor markets, in internal labor markets, jobs are broken down into minute tasks and then arranged in hierarchical ladders in which each job provides the training for the job on the next rung up. And employers who utilize this system only hire at the entry level and use internal promotion for all the higher rungs. 
These practices spread throughout large manufacturing firms throughout the 20th century and eventually to white-collar workplaces as well. For workers, employment in the industrial era was reliable long-term and offered incrementally rising pay on a pre-ascertained schedule. Employers promoted workers from within rather than hire from the outside and gave their workers the necessary training for advancement. Under pressure from unions, employers coupled employment with defined benefit pension plans, employer-based health insurance, accident, sickness, and disability protection, and other benefits such as vacation pay, sick pay, and holiday pay. Thus, by the 1950s, a standard contract of employment comprised of secure jobs, rising pay, reliable retirement income, and adequate health insurance became the norm. The New Deal labor laws and social policies that were developed in the 1930s were also part of this system. The labor laws encouraged the formation of unions and the social security and unemployment programs filled in the gaps for people who had steady jobs but lost them as a result either of business failure or retirement. Moreover, moreover, other social institutions were molded to the same norm. For example, government support of home ownership was geared to this long-term employment system. In the 1930s, the long-term self-amortizing mortgage was invented by the Federal Home Loan Financing Agency, which later became the FHA. Initially lasting for 20 years and later extended to 25 and then 30, self-amortization embodied the notion that mortgage holders were also long-term job holders. Workers would pay down their mortgages gradually over their working careers. At retirement, the entire sum would be paid off. That way, retirement could be a comfortable existence with a secure pension and no housing costs. The result was that the industrial, in the industrial era, once you had a job, you entered an entire system of security and incremental advancement. The pattern for a successful life looked like this. You got a job, then you bought a car, then you bought a house, then you sent your kids to college, either a public university or college, or, an employer, or on an employer or union scholarship, and then you enjoyed a comfortable retirement with pensions and social security. In this way, the New Deal safety net, combined with Keynesian economic policies, industrial practice, and union militancy, created the largest and most prosperous middle class in history. Sometime in the late 1970s, employment practices began to change. Many firms began to use temporary workers and independent contractors to perform tasks previously done by their regular workers. Some also explicitly repudiated any commitment to long-term employment. We now see that these developments prefigured a new era in employment relations, the one I call the digital era. In the digital era, product markets are global and highly competitive. Production is also global, as firms operate all over the world. Profits derive primarily from a firm's intangible intellectual property, such as knowledge, patents, copyrights, trademarks, and managerial acumen, rather than from its ownership of capital or raw materials. Knowledge and innovation, rather than economies of scale, are the key sources of value and competitive advantage. In the digital era, frequent shifts in market conditions and consumer demand, as well as hyper-competitive global markets, lead firms to seek flexibility in their labor relations. 
So here are some pictures of digital era workers. Just as, just as the industrial era was launched by a sea change in management ideology represented by the ideas of Frederick Winslow Taylor, so too the digital era was launched by another sea change in the ideology of management. A new set of theories about how to organize production called Strategic Human Resource Management, or SHRM, emerged in the United States management schools in the 1980s. Throughout the 1990s, these ideas spread throughout the industrialized world. A central proposition of strategic human resource management is that worker knowledge is a valuable commodity. In an explicit repudiation of Taylorism, SHRM teaches that the job of human resources is not to ignore or suppress worker knowledge, but to discover it, nurture it, and harness it on behalf of the firm. As one management historian writes, the Taylorist school of man personnel management sees human resources as expenses. The strategic human resource management sees them as assets. Another central tenet of, is that a corporation should be fractured so that it no longer does all of the tasks, but only those in which it has core competencies, i.e. competencies that differentiate it from its competitors and that cannot be copied, stolen, or easily replicated. To compete successfully, firms need to identify their core competencies and develop them strategically. Tasks that fall outside these core competencies, such as perhaps maintenance or payroll, should be outsourced to firms that specialize in those matters. Thus, SHRM advocates splitting up the firm into components and outsourcing the non-core activities. A third tenet that grows out of the previous two is that firms are a set of resources, some physical and some embodied in the intellectual capital of the employees. This resource-based view of the firm insists on aligning all personnel practices with the goal of maximizing profits from the firm's resources. SHRM involves not just splitting up the firm's business units, but also splitting up the employee. It sees human beings as a variable resource for the firm, but one that should be treated strate strategically. Individuals are hired for their skills and then shed when other skills are required. No longer do firms promise long-term employment, nor do they train incumbent workers for new jobs that might open up, but rather they hire someone else with needed skills when needed. Management today wants flexibility, both operational flexibility, to utilize employees in different capacities as needed, and numerical flexibility to grow or shrink the size of the workforce on short notice. The advent of the digital era and SHRM practices have transformed the experience of work. Employment is no longer continuous over time, rather it is intermittent, episodic, and precarious. Jobs do not offer fixed pay, and an, an individual skill set, usually fully acquired by age 25, does not last a lifetime. Employment is understood by both employers and employees to be provisional, not permanent, even for regular workers. This is particularly apparent for younger workers who don't get jobs, but instead get specific time-bounded projects or gigs. And compensation is no longer based on length of time on the job, but is instead based on individual performance and market rates. 
The result is that take-home pay can fluctuate and pensions are not guaranteed, but rather take the form of 401ks and IRAs in which workers make their own investment choices and live with the consequences. When I first started writing about this rupture, sometime in the late 1990s, some of my labor economist colleagues at Cornell objected that the data did not support my claim that work had become less long-term. At that time, industrial sociologists and industrial relations practitioners were reporting this change. For example, in 1998, the noted sociology Richard Sennett interviewed a number of employees about their experiences of the labor market and reports that the most tangible sign of change might be the motto, no long term. Today, a young American with at least two years of college can expect to change jobs at least 11 times in the course of working and change his or her skill, bo- his or her skill base at least three times during those 40 years of labor. Now, by the late 1990s, the labor market data was, though, beginning to tell this story, and now the story is well accepted and established. For example, the Department of Labor's current population survey shows decided declines in job tenure between 1983 and 2010 for all men over the age of 35, with the most significant declines between men in the age groups over 45. This is precisely the group who were the beneficiaries of the previous system of long-term employment. At the same time that long-term jobs are declining, many short-term jobs are increasing. The temporary help industry, also called the staffing industry, has been the fastest-growing industry in the United States in the last 25 years. As of 2008, there were 2.3 million workers in the temporary help agents, working for temporary help agencies, many of whose placements lasted for months or even years. So this slide shows that temporary agency employment has increased far more rapidly than overall employment between 1990 and 2008. The Department of Labor has also found that the number of mid-career workers who don't have regular jobs, that is, those who are in what they call contingent employment, has increased significantly between 1995 and 2005, as shown in this slide here. That is, uh, that group, over the age of, men over the age of 45, uh, are largely the people who in the past would have had stable long-term jobs. Now, some of you might say, well, why does this matter to us? Because most of us in this room have either uh, formal or de facto job security by virtue of working at a public university. But I would say that this is the world of work that our children and our students are experiencing. So it's important for us to understand. So let me describe it a little more. The transformation from the industrial era to the digital era has two faces. On the one side, it offers exciting creative opportunities for many. Gone are the mind-numbing and narrow and endlessly repetitive tasks of the tailorized workplace. Young people just out of college expect to change jobs periodically, and hence they seek jobs that offer learning as well as resume-building opportunities. Inside and outside of work, they focus on networking in order to build their social capital as well as their skills so they can move around in this new boundaryless workplace. But for many, the rupture is hardly a rapture. To return to Billy Elliot for a moment, the play ends with Billy performing at the Royal Ballet and presumably on his way to a life of glamour, riches, and excitement. But what happens to the miners left behind? 
Today, the world of work is a risky place. The new work practices shift risks from firms to individuals. Individuals now face risks along multiple dimensions. The risk of job loss, income fluctuation, skill obsolescence, long-term unemployment, inadequate pensions, and lack of social protection. Some aspects of the digital work practices have recently attracted attention. For example, we hear a lot these days about the rise of unpaid internships. In many fields, young people just out of college have to endure at least one and also often a series of unpaid internships just to get a job in a desired field. For young people, internships are not necessarily seen as slave labor, although they often have that character, uh, but they provide an entree into the workplace, a natural step in the process of building their careers. Another trend is the substitution of regular workers by dependent as opposed to independent contractors. Individuals who perform the same work as employees but receive lower pay, less fringe benefits, and enjoy few legal rights. This began in the trucking industry uh, some years ago when firms began to convert their drivers into owner-operators and required the drivers to lease the company's trucks, wear the company-provided uniforms, drive routes that the company ordered them to drive in the sequence and on the timetable that the company mandated, and serve exclusively the company's clients. The company also determined the individual's compensation, deducting leasing fees, uniform costs, insurance, and other expenses, and providing the drivers with what looked like, in all respects, a paycheck at the end of the week. The only difference was that as independent contractors, the drivers were not entitled to minimum wage and overtime pay, were not covered by unemployment insurance, workers' compensation, or social security, and were legally precluded from belonging to a union. The use of phony independent contractors has since spread far beyond the trucking industry. Today, it's found amongst janitors, construction workers, IT workers, secretarial workers, hospital orderlies, and even machinists inside factories. Indeed, one of the most litigated issues in the employment arena today is claims of misclassification, claims that an employer has taken a conventional employee and called them an independent contractor in order to deprive them of legal protections. In 2000, a United States Department of Labor study estimated that up to 30% of employers misclassify employees. The study is about to be redone because the department now suspects that the number is much, much larger. Yet another trend today is the rise in just-in-time scheduling. Just as the airlines succeeded in filling all of their seats by using variable pricing algorithms in the 1990s, firms in the retail sector have begun to predict their customer flow and minimize their personnel costs by using complex staffing algorithms. Rather than give workers a fixed schedule, many stores give workers schedules that can change on short notice. An individual in any given week could work five hours on a Monday, four hours on Tuesday, none on Wednesday, seven on Thursday, none on Friday or Saturday, and then four on Sunday. Moreover, that individual might not know uh, until the prior week what her schedule would be for the week coming up. Retail giants use complex software, often provided by specialty workforce management firms, to predict their staffing needs so that they never have more employees than necessary on any given day. 
One leading firm claims that it can predict staffing demands within 15-minute intervals so that there's never excess staff, even for a few minutes. Just-in-time scheduling is now used by many restaurants and hotels as well as retail establishments. Just-in-time scheduling is brutal for employees. Employees in the retail sector complain that they cannot plan their lives. It's become impossible to arrange childcare when one doesn't know what hours one will be working. And moreover, because most retail work is part-time and very low-paid, those workers often want to take second jobs or enroll in training programs, but they can't do so because of their constantly shifting and unpredictable hours. Another consequence is the deterioration of trust. Without long-term employment, neither employers nor employees have a lot of loyalty to each other. As a result, employers worry that employees may not always operate with the firm's interests uppermost in mind. Employers fear that employees who possess valuable knowledge may depart any time and go and take it to work for a competitor. So they increasingly use covenants not to compete or mutual no-raid packs to keep that from happening. A related issue that reflects the erosion of trust involves employee theft. According to the New York Times, firms have experienced alarming rates of employee theft and have instituted intrusive and sometimes harsh interrogation techniques to weed it out. They also increasingly monitor their employees' private lives. For example, a new device marketed on SkyMall, that ubiquitous in-flight shopping magazine, is called a spy stick, and it offers to get employers' information off of employees' cell phones. The ad says, all you need is access to the phone for a few minutes, and you can read the text messages even after they've been deleted. Just plug the spy stick in and the phone into your computer and run the included software. In a few minutes, everything will be displayed on your computer screen in an easy-to-read format. This is the only tool you will need to monitor your kids' or employees' phones. It is ironic to me that the same management philosophy that urges firms to value employees' knowledge and creativity also breeds more distrust than did the work practices of the previous era. Now, one of the most pernicious consequences of the new employment practices is growing income inequality. Of course, there have always been rich and poor occupying the ends of the economic spectrum, but the gap between the endpoints has widened and the space between the tiers, that is the space occupied by the middle class, has eroded. As we see here, since the 1980s, the wage levels of all but the very top have barely risen. In that time period, productivity has increased enormously, but after 1975, rising productivity stopped being translated into higher wages for the lower and middle income groups. Another way to show this is here, where we see that since 1980, the wage levels of the bottom 90% have barely grown at all, while those of the top groups, especially the top 1%, have soared. The, re the result is an unprecedented rise in income inequality. The widening chasm in the income distribution threatens to destroy any middle to the middle class and sever the social fabric. Income inequality is not the same as class inequality in the Downton Abbey sense, but it's not as different either. 
The mega rich are buying huge yachts and other luxury goods faster than they can be produced. They're building homes of 30, 40, 50,000 square feet on huge tracts of land, and they employ small armies of service people to cater to their whims. We read newspaper stories about the rise of schools for butlers and high-paid nannies to serve them. So the rich have been doing very well even during the, the Great Recession. The growing income gap corresponds to a growing cultural gap between the top and the bottom. For example, lawyers for the ultra-rich have invented a novel defense called affluenza, in which they argue that their clients should not be held to the same moral standards as everyone else. Last summer, a Texas teenager named Ethan Couch was given probation rather than life imprisonment or even the death penalty for murder after killing four people while driving when drunk. The reason for the light sentence, explained the judge, was that Couch was too affluent to appreciate the wrongfulness of his act. (laughs) Income inequality is not only morally unsettling, it also fosters a multitude of social problems. So here we see an image from a, a, a recent movie called Out of the Furnace, about two brothers in a dying Pennsylvania town, steel town, whose hold on a middle class life has slipped away as we watch them descend into violence, vigilantism, and drugs. Moreover, some economists now acknowledge that extreme income inequality can actually depress economic growth. Why is income inequality growing? Economists have identified several factors, including globalization, technological change, shifts in public policies, and indeed all of these, I'm sure, play a role. But one factor that has not been considered is the changing nature of work. The digital era I've described has contributed to the deteriorating income distribution in a number of ways. First, workers with irregular and intermittent hours don't earn full-time pay. Many workers do not work 12 months a year. As employment becomes episodic and punctuated by periods of either partial or total unemployment, workers' earnings are reduced. So even if hourly wages were constant, the advent of digital era practices reduces annual wages. Moreover, hourly wages have not been constant. Workers are to a large, wages are to a large extent a product of bargaining, and hence wage levels are a function of bargaining power, both at the individual and group level. The work practices of the digital era reduce workers' bargaining power, both as individuals and as groups. Precarious and atypical workers lack the bargaining power to resist wage or hour cuts because employers have a large pool of other transient workers to employ in their stead. In addition, many of the central tenets of SHRM involve individualizing employment relationships, particularly those aspects that involve compensation. Today, the goal of compensation theory is to ensure that employees are paid their individual market worth rather than according to mechanisms that tended to compress wage structures in the past, such as corporate norms or union contracts. Whereas in the past, pay uniformity was considered a good practice, firms today seek differential pay to reflect differential contributions. And so there's been a significant widening of pay differentials inside firms. In addition, the increased use of individualized dispute resolution mechanisms, which is another contemporary uh, human resource practice, makes pay a private matter and discourages information sharing. 
Indeed, many firms explicitly prohibit employees from sharing salary information, although these practices are currently being challenged. Most importantly, the SHRM practices I've described undermine unions. Unions are the primary means by which workers enhance their bargaining power. And today, unions have shrunk to less than 8% of the private sector workforce and less than 10% of the workforce overall. As unions decline, so too does the middle class. We see here that the decline in union density parallels exactly the decline in the share of national income going to the middle three quintiles of the income distribution, that is, the middle class. The old industrial relations model was union tolerant, if not actually pro-union. Industrial relations scholars saw unions as a constructive mechanism to give workers a voice in their dealings with management. They embraced the ideal of unions as a countervailing power in the workplace. To be sure, corporate managers were not as enthusiastic about unions as academics were, but they were resigned to them and willing to work out a modus vivendi with them. But not so today. Corporate managers who adopt SHRM policies assiduously avoid unions and aggressively seek to root them out where they exist. They see unions as purveyors of rigidity and protectors of inefficient practices. Thus, new work practices have been introduced either in firms that never had unions or in older firms that managed first to weed out their unions. But union decline is not merely a matter of employer opposition. Since the 1930s, unions have been workplace-centered and have protected people in long-term employment relationships. And as I've explained, the workplace has been fundamentally transformed. Gone are the days of steady work with a single employer throughout a career. Traditional union goals, such as seniority, job bidding rules, just cause protection, are not as important to workers as they were in the past. Many workers ask themselves, if I'm only going to be here for a year or two, why should I take the risks involved in organizing a union? Also, traditional union practices are not responsive to the needs of temporary workers, on-call workers, or other atypical workers. So the problems for unions go beyond the escalation of employer resistance. They go to the changing nature of work and the inability so far of unions to respond. To put it bluntly, the world has changed, but unions have not. The labor laws exacerbate this problem for unions. Under the labor law, if a union wins a certification election, it has a right to bargain with an employer for a collective agreement to establish terms and conditions for all the jobs in a functionally defined and static bargaining unit. The terms that are negotiated only apply to the jobs in the unit, and they don't follow the workers if they move to jobs elsewhere. Yet part of today's practices involves moving employees between departments uh, within firms, and also much of work today occurs in networks that cross multiple firms' establishments or involve multi-employer tasks. The result is that as individual workers today move between uh, departments, units, or firms, their labor contracts don't go with them. Thus, union gains are increasingly ephemeral from the individual's point of view. The labor law is out of step with contemporary practices in other ways as well. For example, the law excludes coverage for some of the fastest growing categories of workers, such as these dependent independent contractors and temporary workers I've talked about. They were written for a world in which employees had one discernible employer, and thus they don't really accommodate holders of multiple jobs or employees who work for temporary agencies.
So now I want to turn to the issue uh, uh, of invention. To preserve a sustainable middle class, we need to rethink our laws and social institutions quite broadly. First, we need to reform the labor laws to make it possible for workers to organize across employer units. And labor organizations will have to change their structures and goals in order to address the needs of today's fluid workers and enable them to exercise power across multiple employers. At the present time, there are some new types of organizations that are attempting to do this. For example, in over 140 cities, including Los Angeles, unions have worked with community groups who enact living wage ordinances that require local governments to pay a wage to its workers and those of its, its contractors that are higher than the statutory minimum. And some of these ordinances mandate not only living wages, but also paid family leave, vacations, sick leave, employer-provided health insurance, and even some job security. But changing the labor laws and and, and, and new union structures are not sufficient to address the problems workers face today. Unions are based on a subjective experience of solidarity. They emerge from social movements in which large numbers of workers saw themselves as having shared goals, grievances, and experiences. Today, many people do not identify as workers, even if they work for a living. Many have overlapping identities that include their race, gender, ethnicity, sexual orientation, local sports team fans, members of certain social networks, players of certain video games, and so on. Their role as worker is often secondary or even far down the list in their sense of identity. Thus, we need invention in social policy as well as in organized labor. Basically, we need to develop social policies that help people weather the inevitable transitions of the modern labor market experience. So, for example, we need to reconsider education policy. Today, we expect workers to be prepared for a knowledge economy, but our schools of higher learning are seeing their budget slashed, as we know. And in a labor market in which individuals have frequent job changes and skill requirements are constantly shifting, individuals need training and retraining throughout their lives. Our educational system concentrates on the early years of life. We have elementary and secondary schools to teach basic reading and math, and community colleges and public universities to prepare people to enter the labor market. But we need to add a new layer, institutions that are dedicated to providing older individuals with career enhancement opportunities throughout their lives. We also need to rethink housing policies. As I said, the 30-year fixed mortgage was a feature of the long-term job era. Today, we need to restructure housing policy. I have proposed that we redesign mortgages so that payments are reduced when an individual's out of the labor market. My proposal is that when an individual is unemployed, in training, or engaged in care work, their mortgage should automatically revert to an interest-only loan. The individual would pay only the interest portion and not pay back their principal at that time. The length of the mortgage would correspondingly increase, so it would eventually be paid off, but the individual would not face foreclosure while they're out of the labor market, and the lenders still would get their interest payments. This would shape mortgage policy to correspond to the contemporary career trajectory. In recent years, I've also looked at how some other industrialized countries are addressing the problems of the changing nature of work. I found that a number of countries are experimenting with policy innovations to deal with transitions. 
For example, Denmark has a, has a system called flex security in which workers who lose their jobs get 90% of their former wages for up to four years but are required to participate in training programs to improve their skills. The government and the unemployment funds pay for the training as well as for relocation and job placement assistance. This system enables workers to improve their skills and get a new job without suffering economic catastrophe if their employer goes out of business. Another innovative approach was developed by a group of distinguished European labor law scholars who were convened by the European Commission to consider policy solutions to the problems posed by the decline of long-term employment. They developed a proposal for the creation of a new social right called social drawing rights. Under the proposal, an individual would accumulate drawing rights on the basis of time spent at work. The drawing rights would provide paid leave for purposes of, of obtaining change, training, working in the family sphere, or performing service uh, work. It would be a right that an individual could invoke to navigate career transitions. Australia already has a variant of this system. Their workers have a right to something called long service leave that gives individuals six months paid leave after a specified period of time in the workforce. In the United States, we have precedents for paid time off with reemployment rights, such as leaves for military service, jury duty, union business, or other socially valuable activities. And some occupations, as we know, offer periodic sabbatical leaves. So these programs could serve as the basis for developing a more generalized concept of career transition leave. I also have a proposal to address the problem of just-in-time scheduling. A similar problem was confronted by airline workers over 50 years ago because the carriers needed crews available, but also needed to cancel flights or modify staffing on short notice. Flight attendants organized a union and achieved through bargaining a job allocation system by which each month the workers bid on their preferred monthly schedule and the bids were awarded by seniority. In this way, the workers obtained predictability in their schedules and were able to plan their lives accordingly. The union contracts also limit on-call work and require minimum hour guarantee for those workers who are on-call. If workers in industries that impose variable hours and use short sh shifts unionize, they could negotiate for an arrangement akin to the flight attendant model. So to conclude, or to wrap up, um, my proposals do not address all of the problems I mentioned, and I don't pretend to have all the answers. But I do know that we need to invent new social policies to address the changing nature of work. Now, you might object that any reform is hopelessly utopian, given the political realities today. But I'm not so sure. The policies we need are not primarily redistributive measures. They're income-smoothing measures to help individuals stabilize their livelihoods as they move in and out of the labor market, as they fluctuate between periods of employment, unemployment, training, entrepreneurship, care work, and retirement. It's inevitable that most of us will experience these fluctuations, so we all need income-smoothing measures. Thus, we need policies that are not just for the destitute, but that are also for us, for our children, our students, and our neighbors' children. So despite grounds for skepticism, I also have some reason to believe that some such proposals might not be utter non-starters. So I see this in the response to Obamacare. 
Although Obamacare is wildly unpopular amongst Republicans, even, even they approved the provision that extends children's health coverage on their parents' policies until age 26. Why is this provision popular? Because most people's children uh, today, are uh, uh, children who are in their 20s, don't have regular jobs, or if they do, they have jobs that don't give them health insurance. So as parents, we're all worried about getting our children covered. It's a shared concern that results from the changing nature of work. I believe that the more people understand that the problems I've been describing stem from the changing nature of work and are going to be with us for a long time, the more people will be amenable to policy initiatives to address them. So if we understand that we face a new reality in work, we should be able to develop a policy agenda that could rally widespread support. The first step is to understand and describe this new reality. And it's there, I would say, that universities and the faculty, researchers, staff, students, and administrators who inhabit them play a crucial role. Universities are places where insights can grow into ideas and ideas can mature into frameworks that shape how we and others view the world. So I hope that the insights I shared with you today can help frame policies to create a sustainable middle class going forward. So I thank you for your attention. Um, I'm, I'm neither a, an economist nor a lawyer. You can see better here. But, you know, it seems to me one way to interpret this is that as labor costs become more expensive in the United States which is why we've transitioned out of this industrial era, because manufacturing moves globally to cheaper labor markets, the deteriorate, is the deterioration of our middle class accompanied by a building of the middle class in less developed countries. So in a sense, even though our disparity is increasing, on a global scale, this actually may be decreasing. What's your thoughts on that? Well, okay, there's two parts, actually. I think it's true that that part of the problem faced today, certainly in manufacturing, is the exodus of jobs overseas to developing countries. There's no question about that. that That's been a very big uh, factor, and it does... Uh, contribute to income inequality, there's no question there either. Um, so I don't... Uh, I, um, now, does the advent of, of, of manufacturing jobs in developing countries raise a middle class? Uh, in part, it does, and it's definitely true that there has been a growing middle class in China and India, for example, um, and some of these other countries uh, that have... Um, um, uh, uh, gotten a lot of jobs, but also what we see is that jobs move again as wages go up, so that they leave China now and go to Bangladesh um, because uh, as wages go up, uh, firms move uh, guarantee a stable middle class. Um, but it certainly is, it, it, it is somewhat uplifting. There's no doubt about it. There's no doubt that there has been some uplift. Uh, but there, um, and what has happened in the countries left uh, in the industrialized world has been growing inequality. Uh, there's no question about that. So um, now the, the idea uh, has always been, well, there'll be new jobs here and those jobs will be more skilled, more, more, more advanced, they'll pay more and therefore it will be win-win. That, that has not necessarily materialized. And I think that's what we see in the income distribution data. 
You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.